0: Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Hai Tzu said to Chuang Tzu, All your teaching is centered on what has no use. And Chuang Tzu replied, If you have no appreciation for what has no use, you cannot begin to talk about what can be used. The earth, for example, is broad and vast. But of all this expanse, a man uses only a few inches upon which he happens to be standing at the time. Now suppose you suddenly take away all that he is not actually using so that all around his feet a gulf yawns and he stands in a void with nowhere solid except under each foot how long will he be able to use what he is using? So, Hai Tzu said, it would cease to have any purpose. Chuang Su then concluded, this shows the absolute necessity of what is supposed to have no use. Hmm? Not very logical is it no. you know and in our mental processes of course we pride ourselves on our logic you know we are what are called what is called a logical people or logical animal animals with logic huh? and in the Aristotelian sense a is not B that's logical right The opposite is opposite. That's a law of identity. That's the first law of uh, logic according to Aristotle. Uh-huh. A is A. A is not B. Yeah, it is. Yeah. However, if we really look at ourselves and we look around at life, the actual, you know, not what we think about it or what we feel about it, but the actual that it it implies the opposite in itself because the life you know in life the opposite is not really opposite a is b now yeah? now some say well that, that you know they're a and b are complementary light and dark are complementary and i don't think that takes it far enough see We must, I could say, depending on what you're headed for or what you want out of existence, you know, then we could say we should, we must, we must come to realize that everything in this phenomenal world is relative, relative. You know, if there were no hot, there would be no cold. If there was not near, there would not be any far. If something doesn't have an opposite, it in itself doesn't exist in this phenomenal world, right? Life and death, you know. So we can say there is life and then there's death and that's the end, but death is not an end, really. You know, and death is not an enemy, it's going to end us. No. Actually, death is involved right now. You deal with it every day of your lives. Well, every moment, every breath you take is involved with life and death. Otherwise, existence is not possible. So there is light and there is dark. And in logic it is said they are the opposites. Or, you know, we would say, well, if it's light, there can't be any darkness. There's you know there's no darkness in light. If it's dark, then there isn't any light. But look a little deeper. If there is darkness, it is because of light. If there is light, it is because of darkness. There is silence. And there is sound. How could you hear any sound if there were not silence? So we learn to look at this dichotomy... And we, that we, have, we do because of the way we see and the way we hear. <coughs> and we learn to set it aside and see ourselves and all things as relative. Now, the, the Chinese point of view, you know, that all things, all forms of energy move from one pole to the other, this polarity. You know, It's called the enantiodromias, this movement. Dark moves into light, and light moves into dark, and again, and again, and this is the movement of life itself. They're moving back and forth. Hmm? What is seemingly so at a given point in time is seemingly not so at another given point in time. we've all witnessed this in ourselves yeah and we can and we say this is the Chinese point of view but we can go back to Heraclitus in our own heritage our culture and he said everything is in a flux and that uh, the basis of everything is fire everything is in a flux everything moves everything is in motion And in this he held the the mingling of the opposites. You see? And he said, Men do not know how what is at variance agrees with itself. Hmm? It is an attunement of opposite tensions, like that of a bow or a lyre. Good and ill are one. To God all things are fair and good and right. But men hold some things right and some things wrong. The way up and the way down is one and the same. Hmm? God is day and night, winter and summer, war and peace, surfeit and hunger. Now the works of Heraclitus, like uh, most of the philosophers that lived before Plato's time, are known today only through some quotations that we have found, largely these quotations made by Plato or Aristotle, and made for the sake of reputation. They wanted to refute what these philosophers had said is the only way we we know anything hardly about him at all just think if any modern philosopher of today you know if we were if he were known only through refutation through what they call polemics of his works you know (laughs) well i mean you make an enemy out of somebody and then you say blah 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 and that's the only way he's known but just think, through all the mists of all, these, all this time, all, this, all these ages, and through the midst of this malice, in a way, this refutation, you know, how great they must have been, these old philosophers, huh? It was Heraclitus who taught, everything is becoming... There is everlasting change. Everything is becoming. Everything is becoming something other than what it is. All the time, this constant movement of becoming. We don't hardly think of ourselves as becoming, but this is what's what's going on. We're becoming. We move from the polarity of becoming happy to the becoming sad, and from the becoming sad to the becoming joyous. And from the joyous, we move to the becoming despair. Moving back and forth all the time. Everything always in flux. You're moving from being hungry to, to eating and satisfying yourself. And then the movement again to being hungry. Always this movement. Everything is becoming. You are always becoming something. Some. Mm-hmm. Hmm? Hmm. Anyway, being human beings, scientists are human beings... Like philosophers, and like us all, we try to escape from this doctrine of everlasting change. We don't like it. No, we don't. We want something very permanent in the midst of all this moving phenomena. We want something to stand on. Huh? We don't want all this flux. We can't keep up with it. Hmm? And so, for a while in this world, chemistry seemed to uh, satisfy. You know, they discovered that the fire, which appears to destroy something, only transmutes it. See? We came to this, you know, and then all the elements are recombined. See, so came the thought that atoms were indestructible. And all the change in the world was nothing but the rearranging of these atoms. Then came, of course, the modern-day science, and we found smaller units. And these smaller units were called electrons and protons. And for some years, we endowed them with the indestructibility, you know, that we had given before to the atoms know and then it seemed that protons and electrons could meet and when they did they exploded and what they formed was not new matter but a wave of energy Hmm? so energy replaced matter as to what was permanent but now energy is not just a thing as we think of a thing huh Hmm? It's a process. And the fire of Heraclitus is a process. It is the burning. Not what burns. It is the burning itself. It is a process. It is not a thing. Life is not a thing. It is a process. It is a burning, if you want to put it that way. Hmm? Now, yeah. someday we hope we might understand this, Heraclitus. Anyway, in the meanwhile, here we sit with our conditioned psyches. Yeah? A conditioned psyche is, you know, filled all full of things. The content, the images. Now, all these images, all the content in the psyche is in a flux. See, It's in motion. Even this ego, you know, which is the biggest thing that we have, you know, To all of us, it's our most seeming stable whatever. Hmm? Even though we can't put our hands on the ego, it is our seeming stability, evidently. Yeah? Because we fall back on it over and over and over and over and over and over. We save face for it. Hmm? We do whatever we do for it. It is almost as if it were a God to which we pay great homage. Huh? We give our lives to it. We give our energies to it. Yeah. And when the time runs out, it's gone. Huh? And we are left then with what we had thought of was useless, if we thought of it at all. The Master Genshaw had a visitor, very important visitor. He was the Prime Minister. And they were having cakes and tea together. And uh, during the course of this conversation and cakes and tea, the Prime Minister asked this Master Genshaw, what is it that we use every day and do not know it. And the master, Genshaw passed him a cake, you know, the little plate, and he said, have, have a cake, and he poured him some more tea, and the prime minister drank a little tea, and he took the cake, and he ate it. And then he asked the same question. What is it that we use every day, and do not know it? Allah, said the Master again, We use it every day. Hmm. Hmm. We put it so far away. This process that we call life or living its this mysterious motion going on it moves through and it moves in the opposites and it gives a balance this is how balance comes about and it gives a tone to our lives and it makes our background it is uh, you know out of what do you operate this ego that stands here and all the content of the psyche all operates out of something. Hmm? If you understand that, then you will begin to understand Chuang Tzu. Yeah. Now, in, in 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 this Taoism, in this Chinese thing, you know, we find these terms, the yin and the yang, masculine and feminine, positive and negative. The seeming opposites, male and female, seeming opposites. Just think of a world that is totally male. Hmm. Or a world which is totally female. What would you have? A dead world. The polarity is needed. The seeming opposite is necessary. There is attraction, and there is this magnetism. Hmm? This seeming opposite impinging, you know, brings you out of yourself. It is that seeming opposing, you know, that brings you out of your prison. What else is going to penetrate? Hmm? It is the seeming opposite that makes for growth and maturity. And when you deny it, you have got what is called trouble in River City. <laughs> huh? Yeah. You know it's it's like our monk one day he was being questioned by his son and the boy wanted to know how did you and mother meet you know how did you get acquainted kids ask this you know how did you get together and the monk just shook his head and he says don't ask such things just don't ask me and the boy persisted and the monk finally says well I'll tell you only one thing she cured me of whistling (laughs) <laughs> you're not even here <laughs> <laughs> oh. <clears throat> so this Chuang Tzu then says if you deny the useless there will be no use in the world if you deny the fun and the laughter and playing of what uses work, of duty and of striving, you know, that they, they've got to work together. Hmm? Both must be present. You know, it's, and then it's, Lao Tzu is very strong on this. If someone asks you, what does a house consist of? Walls, right? Walls, right? But Chuang Tzu and his teacher before him, Lao Tzu, you know, he would say that a house does not, you know, the walls are not that all important. It's not the walls alone. Walls are useful. But their use depends on what is useless, and that is the space within the walls. How else would you sit here except for this useless space? How else could you hear what is being said except for this useless space? If you even looked in your mind, how could you think what you're thinking about what you're hearing except for some space? Hmm? He's spaced out. That's all right. (laughs) That's all right, Willie. So Lao Tzu wrote 30 spokes unite in one nave, and on that which is non existent, that is the hole in the nave, depends the wheel's utility. And that's all? Okay. Clay is molded into a vessel and on that which is non-existent on its hollowness depends the vessel's utility. By cutting out doors and windows we build a house and on that which is non-existent the empty space within on that depends the house's utility. Therefore existence renders actual but non existence renders useful. Just remember that. Hmm? The actual and the useful. Okay. So we got the walls. The walls we have to pay for. The space is free. <laughs> huh? Yeah? And yet when you buy a home, where you buy? You buy the walls. The walls are what is mortgaged. Yeah. But in order to... That's what you buy. But in order for you to live in that house, you've got to have the space. Hmm? Where would you put the furniture if you didn't have any space? See, It is the useless huh? which is the most useful. That renders actual. Yeah. Now, uh, in Denmark, there I lived once upon a time a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Yeah? And he wrote about himself. He said, when I started praying, I would go to church and talk to God. Yeah. Which I think we've all done to some degree, one way or another. Hmm? When I talked to God, I was advising him what to do and what not to do. Yeah? As if he were some kind of monarch, you know, a king, that we try to persuade or to bribe, or to plea bargain. Huh? For what? For what? For our desires, huh? Probably to save face. Mm. But Kierkegaard said, too, I started talking. You know, when I went to church, I talked to God. And then one day, suddenly, I realized that this was no good. The one had to be silent. Huh? What can I say that will help God to know more? Hmm? If He is, after all, omniscient, what is the my what is the purpose of my telling Him anything? He already knows. Huh? And then, said Kierkegaard, after years of this trying to be silent before God, then I started to listen. Hmm? You know, silence seems useless. You sit along with somebody and you're silent and pretty soon you begin to think, I really ought to say something here. I mean, he's going to think I'm nuts and he's going to think I don't know anything and, and <laughs> I really ought to say something and you sit there and you both get kind of fidgety, peculiar silence. Hmm? But there's another kind of a silence, huh? That's silence, but silence does on the face of it seem useless. We push it away, <clears throat> you know. How often is your mind silent? You won't allow it to be silent bloom, 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 bloom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. until one day we come to realize something about silence. Talking, you know, seems very useful. Yeah. We can know things through talking. We can seemingly accomplish things through talking. What can you do with silence? But if you didn't have the silence, how could you hear the talking? You know, when you begin really to, to grasp this thing and you begin to move from polarity, to from pole to pole, then you begin to glimpse the beauty of this non-doing, of this becoming useless. Now, I don't mean that you just sit there and be useless. You've got a world to be useful in. But some element in you... Is seemingly useless. Hmm? So, I said to Chuang Tzu, "All your teaching is centered on what has no use." And Chuang Tzu replied, "If you have no appreciation for what has no use, you cannot begin to talk about what can be used." See, we can talk about useful only because of the useless. Things are useful because of the useless. Hmm. Well, all right. The whole day you're awake and you're running around being very useful. After all, this is the the pinnacle of something or other that you're useful in the world. Hmm? And at night you fall asleep. What's the use of sleep? No, it's wasting time. You're not being of any use to anybody when you're sleeping. You know, and we have so little time. After all, one-third of our lives is spent in this useless sleep. Yeah, he agree. <laughs> now, scientists all over the world think about such things. And so the scientists in Russia... They also, and I'm told, that they decided that sleeping was a waste of the labor force and it was very uneconomical, and so something should be done about it. Man should be awake for 24 hours a day. Just think. If they had been successful in keeping man awake 24 hours a day, it would kill us. You would be, you know, at best, just a mechanical device going on, working and working and working and working and working. There wouldn't be any day. There wouldn't be any night. There wouldn't be any rest. There would be no seeming opposite into which you could move and forget what's over here and so come out again refreshed. Hmm? But anyway, they started their sleep teaching for little kids, small children slept with tape recorders plugged into their ears and they were taught all through the night repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating so that even their sleep was exploited they weren't even allowed to be themselves even in sleep you know they were not allowed the freedom even to dream you know? that happens to you You know, what happens after a day's work? You work hard and, uh, you know, and you have your fun in the evening and then you go to bed and you go to sleep. You move from the useful to the useless. Huh? But now, in sleep, there is a process. Everything is still in flux there is a process and in that process you you know this that is aware of, of the contents of the psyche and with, with that with which you know your world hmm? so for the moment we call it consciousness huh? The consciousness itself it returns to its source hmm? every night you return to what you originally are Every night, you find out the answer to the enigma of the whole thing. Every night, you go to sleep. Now, if consciousness were awake while this ego was asleep, just think what you would know. Huh? I mean, every night... Every night, every night, you move into the opposite. And then in the daytime, you move into this. And then at night, you move into it again. Huh? You know, so comes the question, you know, where do you go when you go to sleep? Hmm? Well, even, you know, not knowing what we're doing when we're sleeping, when we're being so useless, you know, in the morning, usually, if you've had a good night's sleep, you wake up with a new clarity, you know, in the morning, you've got more energy. And that all comes through the useless. Maybe I ought to sleep more. <laughs> yeah. And so with this meditation, hmm, you move from the useful world to the useless world. See? Everything becomes silent. And suddenly there appears before you this source of light. But it has no value in the marketplace. No? You can't go out and sell it. You may be able to sell words about it, but you can't sell it. You can't say, oh, I have experienced great meditation And so now I have meditation to sell. Who is ready to buy? Who's ready to buy my meditation? All bids, who's ready to buy my meditation? Huh? (laughs) No, you can't do that. Your meditation is your meditation. Belongs to Your path is your path. You can't sell it. But it is through this meditation, you know, that one moves into the vastness of the useless. It's like you're moving into a sea and you have no charts, you have no maps, you know. You move into this challenge of the unknown. And in that moving into this challenge, the soul becomes, as it were, vast and it blossoms when you're very secure when there's no problems and when everything is nicely mathematically planned and everything is settled and so there's no movement then the soul shrinks it doesn't blossom there's no challenge for it we need that seeming opposite pole this is our becoming being becoming you know we feel is useful of what use is being we're very focused on the spokes of the wheel turning and turning and turning what about that which is at the very hub around which everything turns You know, people have asked over and over and over, you know, what is the use of this life? What is the purpose of this life? And I don't know how many of you saw it, but there was a Dr. Feynman at Caltech. I've, I've got it. It was on NOVA. I want to see it again if I possibly can. If you see ever see it's on, let me know. I want to tape it, you know, because he went on to finally say, and he's a he teaches physics, That it's very difficult for people to see that there's no purpose to this, that there is no use to this that we call life. Um, Difficult for people to accept. But then stop and think about it. What is the purpose? What is the use of a star? Hmm? And don't tell me about astrology. You know, what is the purpose of a star? what is the purpose of an atom segregate within yourself one single thought it is raining you could say that is a single thought you have no other thought but this it is raining of what purpose is that thought don't deviate from that thought at all but then it's the purpose of that thought Hmm? It's just sitting there all by itself. Immediately you're going, you know, well, it's raining, I got to put on a hat or a coat or something. But that's not that thought anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> the world just is. And there's nothing you can do about it. If you miss a moment, you've missed. You can't go back. So, you know, so watch as you're going along. The useless in the useful. The useless in the useful. Hmm? This useless in you. I hope it, you know, so it stands out, you know, so that it exists, you know. Its existence has no purpose, but it is still the pivotal point of everything. Yeah? Because it is the joy, and it is the beauty, and it is the wherewithal of everything that is useful. Hmm? No, you know, when you're happy, do you ask, what is the use of my happiness? What is the purpose of my happiness? Well, then the purpose, you go back and look, I'm happy because. No, but what is the use? What is the use of your happiness? When you're in love, do you ask, what is the purpose of love? When you're immersed in this feeling, what is the purpose of it? What is the use of it? In the early morning, when you see the sunshine and there is this flock of birds, you know, pictured in the sky. What is the purpose of it? You no? Know? And there's the flowers that bloom all alone in the night and they fill the whole night air with their fragrance, like the jasmine does, huh? What is its purpose? What is the purpose of a bird singing? To make you happy? You know, it's like Bodhidharma. You know, he worked so hard there in China to give the teachings of the Buddha. And he put them together so nicely with the Taoist thing. And this emperor that had helped him so much, asking him, you know, I have donated to this cause and I have donated to you, you know, what will be my reward? And Bodhidharma says to him, none, there is no reward. Well, then, if there's no reward for all this work, you know, why did you bother to come here and work so hard? And Bodhidharma said, the tree grows in the garden. That's Bodhidharma's Zen. Hmm? Understand there is another aspect to you, and then begin to look for it. You know, it's just, it's, it's there. You can look for it. You may not be able to grasp it in your hands, but you will be able to see it, you know, and then something else happens, you know. There is a hidden, you know. This is out in front. What backs up this facade, you know. Purpose and use, you know, is part of our mental structure. We're we're taught to think of youth being useful, and, and having purpose in what we're doing. Hmm? But then we look at nature. Hmm? We can look at our body. It exists seemingly mindlessly. Nature doesn't think, it's all experimentation and mutation and joy Hmm? and we talk about unconditioning the conditioning that is the unlearning of what we have learned and we find out a little bit about it we want to drop the conditioning to have a look at what is unconditioned hmm How are you going to drop it if you keep looking at the conditioning as being so useful? Hmm? As being so purposeful. Of course, you know, when you go to work, when you go to the market, you know, you take it with you. (coughs) All this usefulness and all this purposeness. When you sit in the shop, you use it. But you can also watch yourself the mind is constantly sorting out what you're doing all day long. This is useful and this is useless and this is useful and this is useless. You know, I'll get back to this later. This right now is useless, this is useful. All day long you're doing it. Yeah. But meditation represents the useless. It is the non-purposeful. See? So one moves from this is useful, huh? There's something back here that's seemingly, what is called? <laughs> it called? useless. So you move from one to the other. And you move naturally. Then there's now all this big struggle and all this conflict, you know. When the mind is needed, you use it as a mechanical device. When it is not in use, you set it aside. And then you can be useful and useless at the same time. And your life will be tremendously enriched. Hmm? Your life will become balanced, and in that balance you will find transcendence. Hmm? Now, if you have no appreciation for what has no use, you cannot begin to talk about what can be used. This earth, for example, is broad and vast, but of all the expanse, a man uses only a few inches upon he, which he happens to be standing at the time. Now suppose you suddenly take away all that he is not using so that all around his feet a gulf yawns and he is standing in the void with nowhere solid except under each foot. How long will be he be able to see what he is using? And too said, It would cease to serve any purpose. And Chuang Tzu says this shows the absolute necessity of what is supposed to have no use. The useless is the base of everything. Look at the useless sky. Huh? Your house may be useful, and for sure it is, but it stands in the useless sky. Otherwise you would never be able to find it even. Yeah? You know, so one should know both, you know? So, in the balance, you know, there comes the birth of this, what we call, perfect human being, you know? The eternal and the everlasting man. Man. Human. Hmm? You know, we miss, and we miss, and we miss, and we miss. We're so busy being useful. We miss. Hmm? What are you asking? Comprenez-vous? After my diatribe last week of, you know, <laughs> do you understand? I think I better do it in another language. <laughs> huh? Yeah so be careful what you do with Chuang Tzu he's very easily misunderstood if you're told don't be so useful you know let the uselessness stand out and then the mind begins to think you know how we are you know okay enough of this shop enough of this work I'll be a beggar I'll be a vagabond I'll do just the opposite you know this is an understanding, what Chuang Tzu is talking about, huh? You're still carrying around this conditioned mind. Same mind, same conditioning. You understand what this man is pointing at. You know? And it's like the two vagabonds that were arrested, you know, for being vagabonds. And the judge asks the first one, where do you live? You know, and the man says well the whole world is my home the sky is my shelter I go everywhere there is no barrier I'm a free man hmm. so the judge turns to the second vagabond and he asks him and where do you live and he says next door <laughs> So, in, in this balance the balance using the useful and being the useless using the purposeful and being the non-purpose and seeing then this eternal everlasting man and I, uh, Sri Aurobindo, in his poem uh, Savitri, he wrote a thing. I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> Our seekings are short lived experiments made by a wordless and inscrutable power testing its issues from inconscient night to meet its luminous self of truth and bliss. It peers at the real through the apparent form. It labors in our mortal mind and sense amid the figures of ignorance. In the symbol pictures drawn by word and thought, it seeks the truth to which all figures point. It looks for the source of light with vision's lamp. It works to find the doer of all works, the unfelt self within, who is the guide. The unknown self who is the goal. All is not here a blinded nature's task. A word, a wisdom watches us from on high. A witness sanctioning her will and works. An eye unseen in the unseeing vast. There is an influence from the light above. There are thoughts remote and sealed eternities. A mystic motive drives the stars and suns. In this passage, from a deaf, unknowing force to a struggling consciousness and a transient breath, a mighty Supernature waits on time. The world is other than we now think and see. Our lives a deeper mystery than we have dreamed. Our minds are starters in the race to God. Our souls deputed selves of the supreme. And across the cosmic field through narrow lanes, asking a scanty dole from fortune's hands and garbed in beggar's robe, there walks the one now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christ in consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.